What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. And this is Code Switch. From NPR. And I'm sorry if I sound a little... Uh, Flemmy? <laughs> yeah, a little, you know what I mean? I sound a little... I kind of like it, but I don't like the way it feels. I like the way it sounds. Anyway, um, I got <laughs> sick along with the rest of my household just in time for us to have to disembite ourselves from all the Juneteenth uh, situations, all the Juneteenth cookouts. This, of course, is the second year Juneteenth is being observed as a federal holiday. So, you know, it's about to become part of the American summer calendar, like Memorial Day or July 4th and Labor Day. Which probably means, Karen, that Juneteenth is on its way to having, you know, sales named after it. Mm-hmm. You've already seen some minor controversies about people missing the point of Juneteenth or bastardizing the reason for the season. There's that Juneteenth ice cream that Walmart was selling um, <laughs> and had to pull from its shelves after, you know, Twitter did what Twitter does. And there was a giant kerfuffle over, as the comedian Roy Wood Jr. joked, the propriety of slavery ice cream. <laughs> And, Gene, don't forget Liberation Petroleum Jelly. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, yeah, what? that's the thing. Um, Vaseline just released a special limited edition of its little plastic jar, and the label features graphics of lots of black and brown people, and oh it God. announces it believes in skin care equity for all. Now, to be fair, they have done limited editions, uh, like a crochet edition uh-huh. and a psychedelic edition and stuff before, but still, this just seems a little... I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Liberate yourself from ashiness this yeah, summer season. that's yeah. right. And what makes all this so fascinating, Gene, is that until recently, a lot of people, including a lot of our people, did not know what Juneteenth was, let alone yes. observe it. So we thought maybe you'd want to give folks a brief explanatory comma, maybe? Yeah, and I'm a cop to it. Like, I didn't know what Juneteenth was until fairly late in the game, until I was, like, in my 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was, as we're about to go into, it's, it was primarily a Southern thing and a Texas thing. So, okay, in a nutshell, the story of Juneteenth is Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. That freed enslaved people in states that were rebelling against the Union. So, contrary to our rather roseate view of the emancipation, it didn't free everybody. It was a war strategy. Southern farms and plantations wouldn't run too well without all the unpaid labor they'd been counting on all this time. And like a lot of things before technology made news instantaneous, obviously, enslaved people found out about their emancipation at different times. Military men and soldiers had to travel from different places to announce that this had happened. And they got to Galveston, Texas, approximately two and a half years after freedom had been announced. Major General Gordon Granger arrived in the port city of Galveston and read the proclamation on June 19th, 1865. And of course, June 19th, 19th, that's right, but 1865, when a lot of other people got the news in 1863. Mm -hmm. So even though he was on CPT, there was still plenty of jubilation because free is free. And just to be clear, there were other people in places like Delaware who were not emancipated fully until December of 1865. But Juneteenth in Galveston immediately turned into a thing with annual celebrations to commemorate emancipation. There were parades. There was picnics. Contests, church services, and plenty of food. Mm-hmm. Barbecue, potato salad, some of it gene with mayonnaise so you would pass that by. Uh, 
Red drinks, homemade cakes and pies, even when there wasn't a lot of food to be had in the beginning, people shared, and food and Juneteenth celebrations have always gone hand in glove ever since. So it's appropriate, Karen, that today we're talking about food, we're talking about Juneteenth, in a few different ways. You're about to hear a conversation between KGB and the food historian, Rafia Zafar, about the origins of some of these Juneteenth foods. And Chef Chris Williams, a Texan who grew up celebrating Juneteenth, will share one of the recipes he serves that honors Juneteenth in his Houston restaurant. I'm excited to try this recipe, but we're going to start with a brief talk from the master home cook, Nicole Taylor. She just published what's being called the very first Juneteenth cookbook by a major publisher. It's one of the few Juneteenth-themed releases that doesn't make my skin crawl, Gene. In fact, it's actually a very beautiful, very meaningful book that's full of history as well as food. It's called Watermelon and Redbirds, and I asked Nicole about the title. Watermelon is a fruit native to the African continent, but for all Americans, it's a fruit that cools you down in the hot summer months. It's luscious, it's juicy, and it's very recognizable. So I wanted to make sure that that word or or fruit became a part of the book. And redbirds. Just thinking about why I added redbirds to the title, um, it makes me smile. And that's because my mother used to tell me this story growing up. And the story was, anytime you see a redbird, coming around you, that that's someone from from the family that's passed on coming back to say hello and that it symbolized good luck um, and to blow them a kiss. So KGB also asked Nicole about this sometimes, you know, spiky discussion about who exactly should be participating in Juneteenth since, you know, some Black Texans are like, look, this is our holiday. Yep. And she said it's never really just been a Texas holiday, in part because Black folks have always been moving around. Juneteenth has always been all over the United States of America. Uh, We know that during the Great Migrations that plenty of Black people from Texas left Texas and went to other cities. We know that uh, people all across the American South left their towns and cities and they took their traditions with them. And so Texans took their traditions with them. They went to places like L.A. They went to places like Oakland, where you see one of the largest, long-running Juneteenth public festivals in the country. Milwaukee is another place that has had a Juneteenth, a public Juneteenth festival since 1971. You find Juneteenth celebrations that have been going on for decades in Harlem, in Brooklyn. So... My thought is that there are Texans (laughs) all over the United States, and that means that if they can't go back to Galveston or can't go back to Houston or Dallas, they are going to celebrate Juneteenth where they are. And so I believe, I know that we are connected to, and we, and I mean Black Americans throughout the American South, are connected to Galveston because we found out Um, at different times as well about the Emancipation Proclamation being signed. So you go to cities like Richmond 
or you research cities like Charleston, you find out that there were jubilation days or emancipation days. They weren't the same day as June, June 19th, but all over the American South, Black people have celebrated when they found out about freedom after Abraham Lincoln. And that fact just says that we are all tied to wanting our parents or grandparents and great-grandparents wanting us to see freedom. That is something that connects us, wanting us to have a better life and wanting us to stay connected to family. So I debunk that 100% that um, other Black people shouldn't be shouldn't be celebrating Juneteenth. I think that's what's most important is that we ground and continually say the origin story of Juneteenth and that it is a holiday that was born in Texas and give Galveston and the people of Texas the respect by saying um, the full origin story every time we talk about, speak about the new nationally recognized holiday. So Juneteenth being spread around the country as part of the Great Migration story. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Dean Nicole shared with us one of her favorite recipes for Juneteenth is for a sweet potato spritzer. Hmm. It is red-ish in color, but the capoletti, which is an aperitivo, is red. It has a sweet potato syrup that has all the essence of a sweet potato pie. Uh, so that's me, again, bringing in uh, Black American food and and putting my own twist. So I take uh, a roasted or boiled sweet potato and I add warming spices, pretty much the same spices that I put in a sweet or someone would put in a sweet potato pie. That syrup with the capoletti, the vodka and the sparkling white wine creates this beautiful, bright, summery drink um, that you can serve on Juneteenth, really you can serve it any any day, uh, any day that you want to feel joy, you want to feel the jubilation. Uh, but that for certain is my favorite, one of my favorite recipes in the book. I definitely will be having that on Juneteenth. We're going to share that recipe on the Code Switch blog. And in the meantime, we're going to keep this conversation about food and history going. Yep. So here is your conversation with Rafia Zafar which we first aired last year, right when Juneteenth had just been rubber-stamped as a federally recognized holiday. It seems to me in the past couple of years, anyway, that um, Juneteenth has sort of turned into, like, the black equivalent of Cinco de Mayo. You know, everybody goes out and has a Juneteenth lunch or Mm -hmm. Juneteenth weekend, but... It's not about the history that surrounds the food and maybe even birthed the food. It's more about having a good time, Mm -hmm. um, you know, enjoying yourself, drinking, eating, being with your friends. Are you worried that Juneteenth itself may just get sort of deracinated into being another good time day? Well, you know what's interesting? I was actually, of course, I was reading more about Juneteenth because I knew we would be talking. And apparently in the late 19th and early 20th century, African-American newspapers, some of the journalists were even saying, all people are doing is like partying and drinking red stuff. I mean, so this 
This kind of thing. Chicken bones on the lawn. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then the white folks are going to come and look at us. Right. It's like, think of Zora Neale Hurston. My people, my people, my race, but not my taste. My skin folks, but not my kin folks. Right. (laughs) But Juneteenth was, you know, from June 19th, uh, 1865, General Granger, I think, in Galveston was, you know, had three government orders. And one of them was, Southerners, you know, Texans, Louisianas, you guys have not freed your slaves. But actually, January 1st, 1863 was Emancipation Date. So you all are like two and a half years late and people are free and you should hire them, not expect them to work for free. So it Juneteenth was in the mid source, mid the Reconstruction period, that was very much in people's minds. They knew exactly what Juneteenth was about, right? But it's like a lot of, hol- think of Memorial Day, right? You know, Juneteenth, is that going to be something, I don't know whether, when <laughs> I don't know, kitchen appliances are on sale every Juneteenth or, I don't know, shoes or... Yeah, it's a really yeah. different thing from, say, um, watch service on New Year's Eve. Yes. Where people yes. go to church and wait until it's January 1st to be able to acknowledge this was the day our ancestors were free. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, watch night, was it, I think Frederick Douglass was, you know, was sitting up like everyone else saying, is this really going to happen? President Lincoln said it was going to happen. Is this really going to happen? And it did. Mm -hmm. So it becomes folded in, not just to the Methodist church, but to many churches that you stay up it's that tradition that gets layered not just with a religious significance, but with a political and a cultural significance. So people still have watch night services, but they have perhaps fallen away like Juneteenth from sort of the political sort of antecedents or the mm-hmm. political valence that was grafted onto what was, say, largely a religious or a cultural institution. Juneteenth is a Texas holiday, a Black mm-hmm. Texas holiday. You know, migration brought it up to people. It waxed and waned. But Emancipation Day was, New Year's Day was the holiday. Why everybody visits on New Year's mm-hmm. Day. Mm-hmm. Like the importance of being able to visit. The, be able, the importance of actually having your family around you. because Having during, agency over your own body. Exactly. Because it, during, this, you know, during slavery, the period of enslavement, January 1st was hiring day, right? So your Mm -hmm. husband could be hired out on some plantation where you wouldn't see him again. Maybe if you were lucky, you might see him for a year. It might be the day that people were sold. It actually was known as heartbreak day because that was the day your sweetheart, your sister, your mother, people Mm -hmm. could be torn from you legally. And then you might or might not ever see them again. So Mm -hmm. New Year's Day as a day of seeing family and friends was its own commemoration of Black freedom, even though, again, it's like how the antecedents of holidays get diluted and sort Mm -hmm. of forgotten. Um, But that's really what New Year's Day visiting is all about. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is Hop and John, right? Eating Black Eyed Peas and rice uh, for good luck, having collard greens so you have money. But it's a holiday for just, you know, these days, right? You put on a crock pot of 
black eyed peas and you have your rice cooker going and you can have people fold them together and you have a hot sauce. But it's that ability to be with people that was not guaranteed. So there's food culture, there's emancipation. Mm -hmm. What does black food culture have to do with emancipation? What's the relationship? Well, I mean, we, again, I think often of January 1st, right? Because the, and the tradition of us celebrating New Year's Day, being able to provide food to people who are dropping in, right? Welcoming people, that's saying a lot, right? And you use traditional foods. They signify enslavement. They signify the South. They signify African diasporic foodways. I mean, black-eyed peas are African. Collards may be, I, I think they're from Europe originally, the, the cabbage family, but they're like 200 different kinds of greens. So they were a, green, a kind of green that people of African descent sort of took on, like, hey, mm-hmm. these are our greens. But the idea that there are certain foods that you can celebrate because you can, can you maybe can have a lot of them. Uh, maybe you don't, maybe when you make your collard greens during um, enslavement, you can only use like a little scrap, right? But during freedom, you could put in a pig knuckle. Maybe you could even put in a nice juicy ham bone left over from the smoked ham, right? Mm-hmm. So it's traditional foods that then become um, and literally enriched, right, by the addition of ingredients you might not have had access to, but enriched by the notion that you can offer second or third helpings, right? The abundance is the luxury. The abundance, the abundance itself is a luxury. All right, so this is not the point of this interview, Karen, but all this talk is making me real hungry. I want to go cook something. <laughs> I mean... I'm going to just hop off the podcast real quick and make that happen. Save me a bowl of black eyed peas, please. Um, And there's even more that will get you in the mood to cook coming soon. Stay with us, y'all. Jean. Karen. Code Switch. And Karen, we're back with more of your talk with the food historian, Rafia Zafar. That's right. And if you know anything about the food of Juneteenth, there's probably one very specific question you want answered, Jean. I know I did. Why is everyone drinking red soda? Right. Or pink lemonade? Or Mm -hmm. what is this red thing going on with Juneteenth? I mean, Barbara, you can kind of get, right? Okay, barbecue, Texas, okay. But what's with the red? Well, Mm -hmm. there are variety. Now, some people say it's because in... Um, religious practice, they say in your, among the Yoruba people, for one, like of various cultural uh, and ethnic groups, red was uh, had a uh, spiritual significance mm-hmm. in ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So red has this, you know, this positive meaning to it. So mm-hmm. if you have a red drink, it's you know propitious. It's good mm-hmm. fortune. Other people say, you know, the cola nut, as in Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. But cola nuts could be used to keep the water from being bitter tasting. So mm-hmm. it was used. But well, there are different varieties, I guess. So there mm-hmm. were red ones. And then if you crush those, they tint the drink sort of a pink red. So they uh-huh. think it could be from cola nuts. But there's also hibiscus. For those of us who are red zinger drinkers, like 
celestial seasonings or people who are from Jamaica, the Caribbean, yeah. right? Jamaica, the, the, mm-hmm. the drink you get in Mexican restaurants, mm-hmm. that's from hibiscus. Huh. Hibiscus, like cola, is indigenous to Africa, to the continent. And that also comes up red when you make a drink out of it. So there are variety, you know, so people say, well, it's, it's from, uh, you know, religious practices. It's from, you know, bot- botanical ancestry. Some people also have said, well, it also represents the sacrifice, the blood, blood of the that ancestors. was shed of yeah. our ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Because <laughs> I have wondered for many, many years, and it isn't answered by seeing big jugs of like big red on, yeah. the, uh, on the grocery shelves. <laughs> I know. If you've never drunk it, I would not advise it. You know, one of the things I was thinking about in uh, reading your book was that the sort of dilemma that people, cooks had during slavery, mm-hmm. that they're making these meticulous dishes that they're forbidden to eat. Yes. Uh, they can taste it to make sure yes. that it meets the masters or the mistresses' mm-hmm. specifications, but they're not allowed to actually sit down and have a dish of their own. Harriet um, Jacobs records that, you know, people spitting in the pots so mm-hmm. that the people who were forced to work with them couldn't even eat the food or share the food because rather they would be than, so repulsed by it. Yeah, rather than rather they'd rather waste it than allow share people that they consider beneath them to enjoy the leftovers. Yeah. So there's that. I'm thinking immediately after emancipation, you could eat what you want, but you didn't have any money to basically buy the things you needed. So you were maybe tasting freedom because this was your little patch of earth or what you could pull mm-hmm. up and you were eating a lot of what we would call uh, now, I guess, forged materials, not hey. necessarily cultivated materials. Um, That's why and- I'm a George Washington Carver <laughs> fan. I mean, yes. I'm a Carver woman, like, yay. George Washington Carver was talking about gleam- cleaning, cleaning and composting. Mm-hmm long before it was a household word. It was ahead of his time. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think of the story of what Black people have eaten on this continent through this (laughs) century, you know, through this, through through our history, what we were allowed to eat, what we could physically eat, it seems like this is closely tied to our status, our changing status (laughs) as Americans. Mm Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, it's like, uh, you know, that often that what we had to eat ends up being what we crave, right? The food Mm -hmm. of poverty is what people like, you know, that becomes our comfort food, right? I mean, so maybe people who don't need to buy pickles and and red Kool-Aid still Mm -hmm. eat it. If you've ever been in Atlanta, there's that chain called This This Is It. It's a a fast food place mm-hmm. that has chitlins and um, offal, right? O-F-F-A-L. Both and you ha- of the word. <laughs> I, I, re- I read about it in the Times maybe 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and I cut it out and I tell my students about it because the, the reporter describes seeing people drive up in Mercedes and, you know, they're doctors, they're attorneys, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're corporate workers, 
And it's because their families don't want the smell of chitlins. They don't want pig feet. They just Mm -hmm. reject them. But it's what they, you know, it's like sometimes you just want, if you're in St. Louis, sometimes you just want a barbecued snoot. Cookbooks. I wanted to ask you about cookbooks before we left because yeah. you do, you have some originals. I have those cookbooks too. You do. I know. I do. Yeah. So we, I have a lot of cookbooks. Um, I was happy to hear that you feel like cookbooks don't necessarily have to be cooked from, but maybe mm-hmm. read like novels yeah. or and read like logical history. They're histories. They're memoirs. I mean, Verda Mays is a memoir. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has, it's a memoir with recipes. Mm-hmm. So she was doing that before the whole Vogue, right? As we say in literary studies, it was a bricolage with multiple <laughs> genres, right? It was epistolary. It was autobiographical. Yeah. It was a, a cookbook, which is now cookbooks are, have a Library of Congress um, classification as a genre now. You know, some cookbooks are really to cook from. Mm-hmm. Some cookbooks are to get ideas from. So you mentioned in your book uh, a woman who has written a cookbook who is very specific to say that she is the mother of 11 children. She not only birthed them, but raised them. Why was it important? What do you guess it was important to her Mm -hmm. to tell us this? And also, how usual was that to have 11 children and be able to raise them all if you were black and female in that period? If you were white and female, the infant mortality in the 19th century, regardless of whether you were white or black, um, was, was extremely high. Mm-hmm. For African-American women who were held captive, who were enslaved, it's not a, a, just a question of your children surviving. It's were you able to see them, right? We Earlier, we were talking about the significance of, of January 1st, mm-hmm. right? Those could be the days where that could be the last time you see your 12-year-old because he's being hired out or your 14-year-old is pretty and she's being sent down the river, right, mm-hmm. to be working as a sex worker in one of the New Orleans bordellos, right? So this is very sad. But so Abby Fisher, it's kind of a humble brag. She talks about making essentially infant formula. And she says, I have, I know this is good because I have birthed 11 children and raised them all. And that's the thing that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. How many enslaved women or even women say who were free blacks could say that they raised all of their children? This is saying something, you know, it's the story behind a story. Did that mean she was a favored slave? Did it mean she really maybe had been freed as a young woman? What kind of, you know, like incredible luck that was that you could have, give birth to 11 children and see every one of them grow up at least until what was seen as more or less adulthood, teenage Mm -hmm. years. That's Mm -hmm. kind of, it's incredible. So it's saying not only is she a super duper cook and she knows what she's doing, but she's also this wonderful mother and she takes pleasure in being a mother and in raising, being able to raise your children as a black woman. So she's saying this in the, you know, in the reconst, you know, in the late 19th century is pretty fantastic. So 
What do you think we ought to take away as we maybe dip into a cookbook or two over this weekend? If that's going to be our Juneteenth activity, what do we learn about African-Americans through these books that we might not have known before? Well, it depends, right? I think a lot of us knew. I think people, the sort of the, the richness, the depth, uh, the, the love, the depth of commitment to one another, the depth of commitment to building community. And, you know, it's not just about surviving. It's about pers- survivance, right? The Native American term. But it's about persistence. It's about loving and laughing and keeping together around a plate, right? And some of those plates signify the past and some of them are new. And then probably today, those two strands, or, you know, are we sure which is from which, right? <laughs> like where, where are these particular dishes coming from? But I yeah. think dishes actually tell us so much about hundreds of years of history and um, persistence um, and, um, I don't know, just the joy, over it all, just the joy of being together. That was author and food historian Rafia Zafar, but that is not the end of our show, at least not quite yet. Jean, after all this talk about food, I didn't think it was right to leave you or our listeners without an actual recipe. I am excited about this because I was very hungry. I was like, okay, this is all too abstract. Tell me about the food itself. I want actual black eyed peas in actual pots, etc. All right. Well, for this, we had no choice but to talk to in Texan. So let me introduce you, Jean, to... Christopher Williams. I'm the chef and owner of Lucille's uh, Restaurant and the founder of Lucille's 1913, which is our nonprofit, which to date has served up over uh, 280,000 meals to those in need from Harris and Fortman County. That last part is relevant because for Chris, Juneteenth was never just a celebration in the traditional sense. Juneteenth for us, just like most holidays, and this is, I guess, really ingrained in our familial approach, is just a day of service. Um, So it wasn't a day for us to go out and have a party in the park or whatever. It was a a day for us to go serve our community. Christopher shared with us a recipe for watermelon salad, which he says incorporates the color red, like the soda water that we were uh, talking about earlier, to represent the blood that was shed by our ancestors. So to make the salad... You're going to take that fresh cut watermelon and you're going to throw it in the mixing bowl and you're going to add the baby arugula and the thinly sliced red onions. We like to have them iced down and ice water because it takes a little bit of that pungency off of them and keeps them nice and crisp. So throw those in there as much as you want. I'm a huge arugula fan. And then you're gonna take your your vinaigrette, uh, which could either be a strawberry jalapeno vinaigrette made with a little bit of rice wine vinegar, olive oil, fresh strawberries, and jalapenos. If you like it a little bit spicier, um, just use one serrano, a little bit of salt. Blend that up. And then you're gonna just pour that over the salad, uh, toss it, go and present it in the bowl, and you can top it off either with goat cheese, feta cheese, and then for a little crunch factor, we add honey roasted pistachios. And you can enjoy it. That sounds really good. I mean, like really, really good. I would I would forego the onions because you know Karen, I don't, I don't mess with onions at all, at all. Um, but that sounds really, really good. 
You're right, Jean, it's delicious. I actually made it and had it for breakfast today without the onions because I couldn't find them this morning. But you had the honey roasted pistachios on Yeah, I kind of riffed. I had some chunks of um, almonds, so I toasted them and drizzled them with a little bit of honey and a little bit of cayenne to make them spicy, and I tossed them in there. So I had the crunch and the cream of the feta and the sort of deep deliciousness of the watermelon and the peppery spiciness of the arugula and with the strawberry vinaigrette sort of pulling it all together. I liked it so much, Jean. I'm going to have it for lunch, too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not mad at that. I want some now. Save me some. I'll trade for a bowl of black eyed peas. All right, that is our show. Our guests were Rafia Zafar. She's a historian at Washington University in St. Louis and the author of Recipes for Respect. Christopher Williams is not the singer, but the chef and owner of Lucille's Restaurant in Houston. You can read more about him on our blog later this week. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on social media. We're at NPR Code Switch. Follow me at G-E-E-D-E-215 and KGB at Karen Bates, all one word. This episode was produced by Brianna Scott and Summer Tomad and edited by Leah Danella. There is original episode artwork by L.A. Johnson. Special thanks to Andrea Henderson, a reporter at St. Louis Public Radio and our very favorite Texan, for connecting us to Chef Chris. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team. Jess Kung, Alyssa Jean Perry, Kamari Devarajan, Natalie Escobar, Steve Drummond, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our intern is Carmen Molina Acosta. Shireen will be back soon. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. And I'm Gene Demby. Be easy, y'all. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth, Gene. See ya. <laughs>